Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event. Welcome to this Institute for Government event on whether Boris Johnson can deliver his government's priorities. And it's quite a week to be discussing that question. The Prime Minister is fighting on any number of fronts uh, with Downing Street parties, electoral commission fines, uh, work from home, COVID guidance and a new baby daughter. And amongst all of that, can his government focus on making the changes that they want to see happen? And is government even set up to do uh, things like that? Uh, they've got uh, net zero, uh, uh, an ambition to hit net zero emissions, level up the country, get Brexit done again. Uh, and those sort of tests that the government set itself for success can't be met in one government department or with one initiative. My name is Alex Thomas. I'm a programme director at the Institute for Government, and we have a fantastic panel to discuss these questions. Before I introduce the panel though, um, we want your questions. Use the uh, panel on your screen to submit questions. If you can say where you're viewing from and uh, who you are, and particularly if we get lots of questions, um, use the, uh, uh, the, the, the thumbs up uh, sign to uprate them. That makes it more likely that I'll see the questions that you want to answer and ask the panel them. And on Twitter, We'll be tweeting from at IFG events and uh, uh, you should join in on hashtag IFG government. So the panel, Kelly Beaver is the new chief executive uh, of Ipsos Mori. Uh, Kelly, we're delighted that you can join us. Dan Corrie is the chief executive of New Philanthropy Capital. That's a think tank and consultancy for the charitable sector. Uh, and very relevantly, he is former head of the number 10 policy unit. Stephen Bush is political editor at the New Statesman and in major transfer market news is moving to the Financial Times in the new year. And Jill Rutter is a senior fellow here at the IFG, a senior research fellow at UK in a changing Europe and a former walker of the corridors of power in number 10 and the Treasury. We're also uh, really pleased to uh, introduce uh, Barbara Bradley. We're um, happy to be working with PA Consulting to uh, put on this event. Barbara is a partner at PA and will kick us off with a, a few thoughts. So Barbara, over to you um, first. You've worked helping government to get things done in all sorts of different areas, including through the pandemic. Uh, give us a few minutes on how to make things actually happen in government. Oh, well, um, thanks very so much, Alex, and uh, good afternoon, everyone. Um, in 2016, following the EU referendum, we all talked about the size of the challenge this posed for the public sector. It was to be a once in a generation opportunity for us, implementing the biggest change programme since the end of Second World War, whilst continuing to deliver business as usual. Fast forward to two years ago and the election of Boris Johnson's government with a significant majority and clear mandate. And with that, a bold manifesto and policy promises to get Brexit done and to level up the UK. But we all know what came next, the COVID-19 pandemic, and with it, a new once in a generation impact on our public services, who now had a new set of manifesto pledges to support the implementation of, as well as the already underway Brexit change programme. We at PA highlighted this was an opportunity the UK public sector hadn't had in a very long time. The opportunity to rethink the very notion of what the public sector is, and in doing so to become more purpose-led, adaptive, collaborative and resilient. 
The response by our public servants in the face of unprecedented challenges made clear that under pressure, government can find ingenious ways to adapt and deliver. It's done this by tapping into the ingenuity of its people, its departments and local councils and the wider world, including through the people it serves and the private sector that supports it. The response also heightens people's expectations for what government can and should be able to do expectations which were already increasing due to our digital lifestyle. These new norms will stay with us now and once this crisis has passed. We issued a warning on this point. With expectations high, any missteps could see this opportunity lost. We're already seeing some trust eroding with those whose priorities may have changed somewhat over the last two years. I really look forward to hearing from this panel today about how they view the achievements of the last years and what may be coming next in order to make the most of this great opportunity. Thank you. Back to you, Alex. Thanks, Barbara. Uh, really useful bit of context about the sort of the innovation, the positives, but also some of the risks, particularly the risks of high expectations. Um, so, uh, Kelly, I'm going to come to you first. I'm going to ask a really simple question that's really hard to answer. Um, how do the public think Boris Johnson is doing? Well, they have lots of different views on lots of different things. And I think, first of all, probably worth reflecting a little bit, Alex, on what they care about and what they have cared about over the last couple of years. And as Barbara said, it was all about COVID for pretty much uh, a large chunk of the last 21 months. But in the last couple of months, we've really seen public concern for what have been second order issues take to the fore, the kind of things they would have been worried about pre the pandemic. Generally, the economy, uh, things like the uh, net zero targets and, and energy and climate change. And when you look at how government are doing across a whole host of things, very government, they're very happy, public are very happy with them on vaccinating the country. They come out very well on that. But on some of those manifesto pledge areas, and again, those are also the ones that are coming back to the fore again, like regional inequality, uh, concerns around people's own personal incomes, etc. A government fare slightly less well. So on things like managing the economy, defence and security, traditional uh, Tory party voting stronghold areas, they're doing better than Labour. Um, Brexit, not doing too badly. Crime, similarly, and the environment, not too badly. They're a tie on the education. And then on a wider range of issues, we see Labour being um, considered to be doing a better job, things like poverty, but transport, housing and the NHS. And I think this is really the dilemma because in the next couple of months, we are going to see this rise in concern about personal income levels, cost of living go through the absolute roof. And those are not natural places where the Conservative Party do particularly well. Thanks, Kelly. Really interesting. And uh, yeah, the cost of living point, we can talk about levelling up and uh, uh, and net zeros uh, as much as we like, but that's that's really resonant. I, I know you've been talking all week about Downing Street parties, so I'm not going to I'm not going to make you do that in any uh, in any depth. But uh, one question on that is how how much does that that sort of um, you know it's important, but in one sense, but in another it's kind of ephemera. How much does that intrude on what the public do care about, and what they think about how the government's doing on these other kind of more kind of core issues? Sure. So it's not the first time that we have had a perceived um, issue with government asking the public to do one thing, but doing the uh, or being perceived to do the opposite themselves or a government official. And to be honest. Um, 
since September time, we have seen a, a bit of an erosion in support for both the Conservative Party and Boris Johnson himself. And it's not a singular issue, but it's a culmination of many issues coming to the fore. So the sleaze scandals, you know, we've had those in the past and they haven't, they've been a blip in public opinion and it has passed. But what we're seeing now is really a bit of a build up. Um, and, and that will start to show more dominantly in the polls, I believe, that we'll see come out in the coming days. Really interesting. Thanks, Kelly. Um, Stephen, turning to you, uh, a big open question to start with. Uh, again, what's your what's your half-time report, and uh, does the do the do the media agree with with the public on uh, how the government's doing? Well, I suppose the um, the half-time report, as it were, would has comes with this huge asterisk, right? And then um, this is a government which um, came in with a set of manifesto pledges that were hard to reconcile right um you know ambitious in terms of of public spending on the kind of core vote moving areas you know health education crime but broadly quite austere in terms of deficits and debt and it wasn't quite clear how this would be reconciled and of course um back then the sort of big the big idea uh, in and around downing street if not necessarily from the prime minister himself was oh well you know if you you know use science and Whitehall reform. Now, uh, I am as excited by Whitehall reform as, as the average IFG uh, panel attending. I <laughs> but, um, but, but I am, uh, yeah, I think it was always a bit of a stretch that they would be able to square the circle of, of that manifesto um, with that alone. Uh, that in any case is, is, is no longer a passion project in, in Downing Street. And um, and I think the big debate in the media, you know, we're kind of, you know, two or three um, members of the commentary or two or three political journalists gathered together. The thing you discuss often is, look, has COVID helped the government by providing a sort of large amount of, of interference? So we're not quite, you know, so, well, OK, lots of economists, well, they are pretty clear what economic damage is Brexit and what economic damage is the pandemic. But, you know, it, it has made some of the dislocation of the initial leaving uh, harder to tell, and it has given the government a political mission, right? For the last two years, the political mission has been, def you know, defeating the pandemic. Now that we are, even though I know it doesn't feel like we're exiting the pandemic, but now when we are exiting the pandemic, you know, you know, both, both for medical reasons and just, I think, for, you know, voter fatigue to, to, to do all of that again reasons. Uh, does the government, is, is it now in a position to deliver on those those big sort of aims? On the one hand, you have a reshuffle in which he has put key ministers who he believes are loyal to him and are effective deliverers um, in the key delivery departments. Um, that reshuffle very similar in some ways to Tony Blair's 2001 reshuffle, of course, as people who remember that far back will, will know, none of the key ministers who Tony Blair wanted to keep in those key delivery departments made it to the end of the parliament. I think it is unclear uh, to be generous that this government will be able to deliver on those key, those, those key principles, because we kind of, this is a fascinating experiment, right? Uh, our system gives a, a huge amount of power to the prime minister, but it's a very underpowered central governing unit and we have a prime minister who is used to having executive roles whether it is you know as a you know as as all journalists like to joke it's always the deputy editor who does does all of the work uh, and the editor just does the big vision um and in many ways right the city hall structure and, and that's certainly not true of, of many editors i know but um but um but the city hall structure 
also sort of encourages that, right? The deputy mayors, you can empower them or not empower them if you're if you are the London mayor and you have in any case a very limited set of powers that were quite well suited to Boris Johnson's genuine passion projects, infrastructure, active travel. Can you, in the British political system, where you have this very powerful prime minister who's institutionally underpowered, have a politician like Boris Johnson at the centre of it and have them deliver on their promises? Doesn't, to be honest, look all that likely than the answer is yes. Brilliant. Thanks, Stephen, and uh, uh, really enjoyed the uh, the blending of the IFG points of a strong prime minister with a weak centre with some of the uh, the policy questions there. Thank you for that. Um, Dan, uh, c coming to you and, and reflecting on your experience in the, uh, uh, Stephen mentioned the 2001 reshuffles there, but in, in the Labour government and the policy unit, there's this sort of truism amongst, amongst people who think about these things. There's this truism that comes from Blair's autobiography that the Labour government was not ambitious enough too slow, should have gone further faster. It almost strikes me that Johnson's government overlearned that lesson and has uh, set out these extraordinarily ambitious promises that it's steadily abandoning, whether that's on planning reform or um, uh, you know some of the uh, points that, that, that Stephen made. What, do you think that? Do you think that's right? And how do you think the government might square that circle? I mean, thanks, Alex. I mean, um, just a little bit of history. I always, uh, you know, revile against that kind of uh, characterisation of the <laughs> of the first Labour term. I think what, what Tony and others mean is particularly on public service reform. I mean, I was a special advisor in the department of trade and industry and my God, we did a lot of stuff, you know, minimum wage, creating off jump, you know, changing competition. Law. So there was a lot going on. So I think it was public services. But I mean, and for me, you know, in terms of getting things done, um, and particularly if you're sitting in, in, in Downing Street, you know, I mean, what do you need? I mean, you need, you need first of all, a kind of coherence as to what on earth it is you're trying to achieve so that all your colleagues know that, everyone in number 10 knows that, every department, every department official knows that. And if you don't have that, you have a problem. We had a slight moment when Blair went to Brown that the civil service said, well, we know what Blair thinks on just about everything, but we don't quite know there's been all these TBGBs does Brown think completely differently? And, and he didn't on a lot of things. It took a little while. At the moment, I mean, quite frankly, it is very, very hard to work out what this government's all about. Um, and I think that incoherence sort of matters. I mean, you know, we, we, we say we've got to get Brexit done, but nobody quite knows what on earth that means. What kind of world do we want? It's, it's debated on, on the Tory side. Economic policy. I mean, I, I found the, the budget statement incredible, really, you know, highest tax burden, higher spending and uh, the Chancellor saying, but I'm really a low tax guy, showing there's tensions there, philosophical tensions as to what on earth people want to do. There's abs I've not noticed, maybe I've missed it, a reform agenda on public services, either as a whole or for any individual public service. And I think the sort of danger of all of that is that the whole system doesn't really know what it's trying to do. Uh, political colleagues, civil service, external stakeholders. I mean, I work with a lot of charities and they say, you know, you know, we might really want to be against the government, we might want to be on side with them, but we don't even quite know what they want to do. So I think that's one problem. And then obviously the other problem is, is the machinery that you've you've got. And I'm not sure that the sort of half-baked sort of Whitehall reform, which seems to mainly involve sacking a lot of good permanent secretaries, uh, that doesn't kind of help you get things delivered. Obviously the number 10 machine's not working well. There's U-turns galore at the moment, which means it's very hard to get kind of loyalty of your colleagues and so on. So. I think both of those two, two things have got to be turned round if, if the government is now going to deliver on any of those big pledges uh, in the next couple of years. I mean, it's not easy when COVID's around and you do, I mean, maybe, you know, it's COVID's different from the financial crisis, but you do need a prime minister who can somehow focus on the main thing of the day for us, 
with Gordon Brown, it was a financial crash. Um, but also uh, had, you know, keep an eye on some of the other agendas, push them on, have trusted colleagues, good colleagues in cabinet who can push them on. And I think a lot of that is missing at the minute. So, I, you know, I think it's been very difficult for them to deliver too much in the next couple of years. Thanks, Dan. Really interesting. Um, and moving to Jill, uh, but before I do, keep your questions coming in. We've got lots, lots, lots coming already. So uh, uh, keen to keen to get those. Uh, Jill, I mean, uh, Dan set out some of the sort of uh, structural uh, tensions there and some of the political tensions in the, in this government. Thinking about net zero or where things might go next on uh, Brexit. We, we're moving into the phase of the parliament where the clock is ticking. Uh, uh, everyone will, uh, you know, from I guess earliest next year, start talking excitedly about the dates of the next election. Has the government got enough time to actually make tangible difference on those those big uh, uh, objectives that it set itself? Well, on Brexit, we aren't quite sure whether Brexit is done or not because we have the rumbling background noise of the Northern Ireland Protocol. Uh, ongoing negotiations at sort of working level, um, below the radar between the UK team and the EU team. But there's lingering threat in the background that the UK is still looking at the possibility of invoking the famous Article 16 and the EU in the background saying, well, if the UK did make that sort of move, then it might move to retaliate and potentially initiate measures that could uh, could land in the tearing up of the trade and cooperation agreement. So that's going down in the background, if you like, as a sort of theme. And one of the problems, I think, with Brexit is that Brexit seems to resurface at a moment of political inconvenience when the Prime Minister wants to throw a bit of red meat to his backbenchers, because actually the one thing that his backbenchers do now seem relatively unified by, and this reflects the change in the Conservative Party in Parliament compared to the Conservative Party of Theresa May, is that, you know, they're all pretty unified around Brexit. Um, and they particularly don't like the Northern Ireland Protocol. So I think that's a sort of rumbling thing in the background. I think net zero is really interesting because net zero is clearly a prime ministerial priority. He's made it clear it's a prime ministerial priority. And it is an area where finally, you could have argued we should have had it months ago, but finally, 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 in the run up to the COP, the government did produce a net zero strategy, which has got a fairly good review from the Climate Change Committee as at least setting out quite good directions of travel in most areas, some missings like there's nothing on agriculture and land use and things like that. But this is the real sort of problem. Uh, government's very good at setting big targets or sort of quite good at the rhetoric of things. Uh, it's then moving that into very crunchy delivery phase. So the same government that is going to very boldly move you into this net zero future is the government that uh, presided over what Meg Hillier I think earlier this week or last week described as the slam dunk fail of the Green Homes Grant, which was the latest in the sort of unhappy list of government attempts to uh, boost the energy efficiency and decarbonise homes, which everybody regards as the biggest challenge in net zero and where the government has said it wants to be moving up towards 600,000 heat pump installations a year by 2028. Now, 2028 is obviously not 2023 or 2024, so it's you know well after the next election, but you need to be on convincing trajectories towards all of those things. Now, I think a really quite interesting question is for issues which require either a very strong centre or a lot of prime ministerial focus to knock heads together, get action moving, 
require a degree of unity of purpose between number 10 and the Treasury. And I think net zero is one of the battlegrounds between number 10 and the Treasury at the moment. Is that really happening? Does the government have the wherewithal to do it? Particularly if it discovers that not only is it entering into a rockier phase on Brexit, but also because of new variants, etc., can't put the pandemic completely behind it. So even where it has sketched out its forward plan, I think moving that into convincing and pacey delivery uh, is not something that looks at the moment particularly well set up for. Thanks, Jill. And some uh, Kelly, I can see you nodding there. The um, uh, the the we all talk about terms leveling up, net zero. Uh, I'm proceeding on the assumption the public has no idea generally what those mean. Uh, how uh, in 2024, let's say, uh, how are they going to judge the success of uh, these uh, initiatives or, or otherwise? Sure. So I was listening and the reason I was nodding as Jill was speaking is because of her reflections about the run in time now to an elect the end of the electoral cycle and the uh, the point at which voters will get another say, because um, that that is very much this this next period of time is going to be absolutely critical and the public's attention is turning to some of those big manifesto pledges and levelling up being one of them and people in the areas that are supposedly going to be levelled up are more aware of what levelling up is than those that are not um, and generally awareness of levelling up as a thing has risen over the course of this year as well so I think um, awareness is rising expectations are quite muted actually and the public's expectations around what government will achieve and I did want to reflect a little bit on public attitudes around levelling up on government achievements and how they will view success and also the net zero, because I think those are the two big pieces which government are going to have to play out very well over the next over the next 18 months-ish in order to be able to convince voters that they're able to do something on those secondary issues. Um, on on levelling up specifically, this is not a new priority for government in general. There's been lavish amounts of policy attention spent on this for decades and decades to no particular benefit. Um, and we still don't have a proper definition of what it is and we still don't have a proper strategy for it. And I believe the white paper has been delayed, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now we follow that. The general public don't follow that. Um, and from their perspectives, what's the thing they will notice the most? how it feels in their area. So big programmes, things like free ports, which are a massive government programme and some of the uh, towns funds, all of those kind of things we notice, but the public will notice about how it feels in their area, whether it feels as if job opportunities are better, whether it feels as if young people have more opportunities and are willing to stay in those areas. And so government will have to, yes, set some metrics for themselves around delivery, but some of that will have to be really perception, feelingy, touchy-feely stuff based um, if they're to understand whether voters have shifted their opinions of whether levelling up has really began. And that's going to be hard to do in a 18 month period. Uh, the second thing just to reflect on is net zero. Um, because again, over the next decade, they have made quite significant promises about what they will achieve. And if you, we've, we've been polling the public, not just in the UK, but globally on attitudes to the environment, concern about the environment, who's responsible, what should you do? And we've seen that rise consistently from 2013, not just in the UK, from, but globally. You know, we want to see people public want to see people take action. It's not just government's responsibility. They know they have a responsibility too. And we have heightened awareness after COP in this country as well. We saw it rise up to the top of our issues index in the last month. 
But when you really get under the skin of it, there are a couple of things that are concerning because when the public, when you tell them what it means for lifestyle changes or financial implications on themselves, or they understand the distributional effects of some of these policies on lower income groups, all of a sudden support for some of the things that are being suggested that you would think if you were really keen to level uh, level up on net zero, do good things on net zero, the public would be behind. That level of support really drops. And we're going to have to make a lot of those really individual changes in the next in this next period of time, the next five years to get the carbon benefit in the latter five years of that promise. And that's going to be a difficult thing to do when you're going into an election, because ultimately there are going to be a lot of individual trade offs, compromises that are going to have to be encouraged by government um, at a point at which they're hoping for votes as well. So I think um, delivering against these policies will not come without challenge. Thanks, Kelly. Um, uh, I'll possibly sort of same or similar questions to Dan and, and, and Stephen, but uh, Kelly set out the kind of the uh, uh, political and the polling uh, challenges there. There's, there's, you know, within that there's a there's a communication uh, challenge for government, and then there's an implementation challenge, and sort of marrying uh, the uh, uh, sort of facts on the ground and how things are changing with a compelling communications message seems like a big uh, uh, task for the next few years. Dan, does that does that resonate with you from your time in government? Yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the things that the kind of Johnson tends to do is to rather overpromise. Um, levelling up being a good example. And, and, and as Kelly said, I mean, actually delivering anything much. I mean, lots of people have been working on levelling up under different names for, for many, many years, um, which I do think has had an effect, um, not a big enough effect. But now if you're going to deliver in 18 months, I'm afraid it is going to be, you know, what some people call tarting up the high street, because that's the only thing that people will notice. And that doesn't create any kind of levelling up or sustainable levelling up or anything like that. So I do I do think there's a, there's a promise. I, I think the government gets cut a bit of slack because of COVID. So a lot of these things, people will say, well, you know, they did their best. And I, I presume going into the next election, there will be, you know, it was difficult. Um, COVID came along, but we started. I mean, just to mention one other thing, which seems to me, I mean, if I was in number 10 at the minute, the thing I'd be most worried about is the NHS backlog. That is everybody will experience that. Everybody will know someone's there. The government has somehow got to do something about that. If I was prime minister, I'd spend most of my time on that. Yeah, that's really interesting. And Dan, Stephen mentioned the sort of government reform programme, civil service reform, uh, catnip to all of us um, uh, uh, in the IFG. Uh, you, structurally, are there changes you would make? And you talked about the uh, some of the deficiencies of the government machine. Would, would you, lots of focus on delivery units, uh, lots of uh, talk of uh, this being the kind of period of delivery. Are there things you would change about the structure of the government? I mean, I do think, I mean, you know, it, it, it always kind of depresses me that, you know, new new governments, particularly from new parties, sort of abolish everything the previous one did in terms of strategy units and delivery units and all this sort of stuff, and eventually re, reinvent them. Um, but you can't have everything at the centre. You do need to have all departments sort of firing on all cylinders. And I, and I, and I don't think for various reasons they are. And I'm not sure that the, the reform, if you think of that, some of the things that Dominic Cummings was clearly trying to do, to many ways, he was trying to centralise it all with the sort of big data room in the centre and all the rest of it. And I don't think that's the way you do things. I mean, and the second thing is, you know, the more I spent my time in Whitehall, the more I became a localist. So we've got to see some devolution. Let's hope we see that in the levelling up white paper. Thanks, Dan. Stephen, picking up on any of those points, or there's a there's a question from uh, anonymous uh, in the uh, uh, in the questions. What does the government have to do to keep and make clear exactly what its promise is on levelling up? We're all waiting for the white paper, but what do you think about that, Stephen? I guess I'm not that convinced that the that the government is going to be particularly judged or on the success of levelling up. 
Um, it was a little bit a kind of thing the Prime Minister said that has become the central project because there is no direct steer from the centre. And so a bunch of people, including all of us for various reasons, kind of go, OK, well, this is a thing that we can write about the oh, yeah, or if, you know, one is a public affairs company or a charity or whatever. It's a thing that one can sort of can hook all number of, of, of stuff on. But what was the central difference between the 2017-19 election result and the 2019 one? It was in 2017 for a variety of reasons, some of them to do with things the Labour Party uh, did and some of them to do with things that the Conservative Party did. And then a large number of things, I think, which were just about the machinery of government. The 2017 election became a public services election. And broadly, the Labour Party does tend to do well in elections when there comes to be a consensus that, you know, the public realm's in a bit of a bad state, the country needs a, you know, regardless actually of whether or not you even see this in 1997, right, where the, the Labour Party is going, no, 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 there'll be no more spending, you know, yeah, yeah. Yeah, every the subtext of all their adverts and the reason why loads of people vote for them is the idea that there will be more spending. I think actually the, the leveling up stuff is is highly relevant because, look, if we could make all of our great cities as economically productive per head as London, well, then we would have made up all of the lost tax revenue that we're forecast to lose from Brexit. Uh, and that that creates quite a lot of wriggle room if you are the Chancellor of the Exchequer in terms of doing all of this other stuff. But I think the stuff that really matters uh, for the government is are, are health, education and crime neutralised as political issues going into the next election? That was something David Cameron was able to do in 2010 and 2015. That was something Boris Johnson was able to do in 2019. And it was something Theresa May was only partially able to do in 2017. Uh, and, and it feels to me that that is actually the big, the, the big focus on the delivery departments with the one thing which has really changed is now climate change is a delivery department because uh, yeah, a large chunk of voters understandably really care about it. But really, that is why the, the one thing that has changed is we would never have, have in 2010 or 2015 even talked about the base brief as a delivery department. But I think it now is a delivery department because if you can't show that you are doing something on this existential challenge of climate change, that does create a voter problem for you, regardless of what type of political party you are. That's really interesting, Stephen. And it's not easy for uh, policy departments to shift to delivery departments. You need quite different skills, quite different people. So that's a really interesting point. I mean, you also picked up on some of Dan's points about NHS backlogs. I think public service backlogs is going to be a huge theme for the next few years. Uh, I'd be interested in Kelly's views on that in a minute, but I'm going to come to Jill next. There's a question um, from uh, Anonymous. Uh, are the things being promised actually going to make a difference? National debt's on the rise and is continuing to uh, impact. It goes to Kelly's cost of living point. So, uh, Jill, on this sort of, you know, the economic context, tax rises, tax cuts. Well done, Anonymous, because that's exactly uh, what I was going to come in on, which is you always in government have two sets of things. You have the sets of things that you want to do, that you showcased in your manifesto, and you have the sets of things that you sort of have to do and that you probably wish you didn't have to do and that you you know, really don't want to spend much time talking about. Talking to friends in the Treasury, their preoccupation is a preoccupation they didn't expect a couple of years ago, which is inflation. They're going to have a difficult time on public sector wages. We've seen Treasury evidence going into pay review bodies saying um, don't set off a wage price spiral. That's the real concern because you've got this ongoing debate about whether the current inflation uptick is transitory how long can you be transitory and still be transitory? 
or are we back to what probably all the rest of the panelists are too young to remember, which sort of grimness of the sort of 1970s, maybe not Dan, but anyway, uh, when you got used to that. It's quite interesting. The net zero debate, and Kelly rightly pointed out to the fact that some of the flaws in the net zero strategy was its reluctance to uh, to front up about you know, what this meant for you as a household, what it meant for you in terms of costs or lifestyle changes. You know, I thought the most telling phrase in net zero strategy was the one about guilt free flying, uh, which is really quite an interesting. I think indication nobody's ripping out your boiler at carrot point. But the backdrop to that is the juxtaposition with rising energy prices. Um, the government is facing a horrible thing when it's price cap, whether or not you think it's a great idea, uh, when the price cap has to go up a long way. And by then they might have ended up nationalising most of the energy industry and having to take direct responsibility for it. We saw that with with bulk. So this economy is going to be a real backdrop. And then you get into backlogs. The obvious thing to do with backlogs is if you can get the people, open brackets, Brexit's made that quite a bit harder, guys. If you can get the people, then you can do it through splashing the cash. But at the same time, you have people who want to see you splash the cash. That's probably number 10. You have number 11 increasingly concerned about rising taxes, already got the highest tax burden since the 1970s, assuming people actually pay those taxes. It's always an interesting thing. Nick first will tell you, actually, they end up not paying. So you don't get that. You just get more borrowing. We've got high debt. Charity's worried about that. We've got the prospect of rising interest rates, which makes public spending much harder. So I think, you know, the government may not want to, but it's actually going to have to think much more about the economy, about its ambitions for that. And I think it doesn't serve itself very well by not having a really honest conversation about some of the options and some of those trade-offs that it is going to have to confront people with. And just finally, and this is possibly more of a bit of a Kelly point, Boris Johnson's huge and unexpected majority was built on crystallising a coalition of people with really quite different interests on a lot of issues. Their unifying factor was Brexit. I think it's quite interesting whether it was a coalition for Brexit or getting Brexit all done, but he managed to bring those together. And we've seen quite a lot of things. You saw that in his great levelling up speech in the summer, where it's you know levelling up but not at the cost to anyone else. And I think that really, really is difficult against the backdrop of a fairly stagnant economy. Kelly, do you want to come in on that? Yeah, well, I just Jill's point on the public and views on fairness. The public in the UK are only fair and it matters when they look at all sorts of the issues that we're facing today. So yes, level up, but don't level down. And Stephen's point about uh, levelling up not being something on which uh, government will be a, as a priority judged. I think when we ask people about which inequalities are they most concerned about, regional and income inequalities are the top two. Those are still the top two. What is less important for the public, which is upsetting to me is at the minute, gender inequality, but also health inequalities, which is interesting um, as, a, as a level of concern around inequality. Um, but on the NHS waiting list point, I did want to come in because that is, that is, high on the public's agenda 
and what will be really tricky for the NHS and for uh, for government generally is helping to prioritise how to tackle those waiting lists because clinical severity is only one, uh, length of waiting time is only one factor on which they're going to have to think that through. Um, and there are lots of things that come into the public psyche about what is fair and how you should prioritise how you tackle some of those waiting lists from the, the health side. Um, so I'll just, I'll, I'll leave it there, Alex. Thanks, Kelly. And actually, Dan, on that point, there's a, a question from uh, Dr. Maya Yakani. I hope I've pronounced your name right. Apologies if not. Um, what does the panel think of the status and likelihood of NHS delivery with respect to the health and social care white paper and the legislation going through Parliament at the moment? I mean, that's not primarily about backlogs, um, but do you think, you know, uh, uh, no top-down reorganisations of the NHS, as someone once said. Uh, Dan, um, uh, uh, do you think this, it will help or hinder? <sighs> I mean, you know, ICSs at the end of the day are probably the right thing to do. Um, although, you know, whenever the NHS reorganises, you know, people are applying for jobs at the moment and all the rest of it. Um, I mean, in the, in the long run, you know, I'm, I'm kind of slightly optimistic. There's various things happening in the H NHS will make it a little bit more focused on, on sort of uh, health and public health, things like social prescribing and all the rest of it. So there's a lot of good things there, but that's not going to help anyone uh, get rid of those backlogs in the next couple of years. Yeah. Thanks, uh, Dan. Um, Stephen, really interesting question from another anonymous person. I take it from these anonymous uh, questions. We've got lots of civil servants watching, which is a good thing. Um, uh, but this is not about the civil service. The past, um, the past couple of months have done damage to the PM's relationship with his backbench MPs. How might that affect his ability to deliver his priorities? Stephen, what do you think? Um, so this, this is a really good question because the sort of underwritten really important thing that has happened over the last couple of months particularly yeah with the party not just with the party right is that um the relationship between downing street and backbenchers is very bad most backbenchers in fact i think actually basically everyone who is not on the payroll in the broadest sense right even counting the people who aren't yeah in fake jobs like pps's and trade envoys um <laughs> but you know everyone who's not in that list has now rebelled at least once and you speak to any any whip past or present and the big thing they say is don't let them rebel the first time because the first time they think oh god it's the end of my career i'm going to be cast into the outer darkness you know my children will stop returning my calls you know my cat will die and the next day of course none of these things have happened and they go oh, that was great i got to express myself and they, they they start to do it more and more right and ultimately the government has well the, the government had to, well had to retreat over planning because it couldn't get its stuff through uh it has some very difficult things it will have to do on net zero which i therefore am quite pessimistic that it will do um i imagine it will have to retreat on those things um the government has had to retreat on you know things like owen patterson right who would I think now actually be back from serving his 30 day suspension. Um, trivial in, in the grand scheme of things, but it is. It's the kind of thing that previous governments might have lost backbenchers by, you know, reorganizing the NHS or introducing a, a new way of taxing local government. And instead, they have used it on some pretty ephemeral trivia. And I just think it, that is when we're assessing this question of can this government deliver on its promises, that is something we should think about, not least because let's take, say, the central scenario, which is government majority goes down by about 20, right? Yeah, merely is still quite large 50. Well, the average rebellion in this parliament would wipe that majority out. 
so we should, I think, be sceptical than, than those relationships, particularly because people have kind of run out of excuses. When they got rid of Dom, they could do the whole, oh, the advisors, the advisors. Well, one of the other sort of hilarious subplots this week is now Allegra Stratton has gone. Basically, even the cohort of advisors who helped get rid of the last set of bad advisors have now gone. So what's the excuse? Uh, and that is a big problem for him. Yes, the, uh, the advisors, uh, uh, good king, bad advisors is running, uh, running short. That's Picking up that political context, uh, there's a question from another anonymous, and I bet this one is a civil servant, um, that I'll direct to Jill. Um, with an 80-seat majority, why is the government still looking at short-term fixes for long-term problems, levelling up transport, education, etc.? Is there any prospect of long-term planning in government ever? Jill? Well, I mean, you could say, uh, in the government's defence, uh, that the net zero strategy really is generally long-term. And actually, quite a lot of the decisions are uh, postponed for quite a long time, uh, a fairly long time horizon. So you could say that that is there, and that's an area where they're backed up by a degree of political consensus in Parliament. Though, as Stephen says, one of the most recent of these uh, new group new groupings on the back benches is the so-called Net Zero Scrutiny Group, uh, who sort of seem to have moved on from being climate change deniers to being uh, questioning whether it's worth it, whether the costs are worth it, and who's bearing those costs, which the government has not really come clean on. So even though I don't think the Prime Minister can guarantee that he can take all his backbenchers with it. But I think government's always going to be rather short term because actually, although we as civil servants can see the long term benefits, we don't submit ourselves to the electorate, whether it's in 2023 or 2024. So we don't have to hang on to the reins of powers. You only know in retrospect that you will return time and time again. And although, and my political science colleagues at UK and Changing Europe would say that Keir Starmer's task in overturning that majority is absolutely immense and completely implausible to be done in one election, you could say that, you know, that this electoral coalition is very unusual. Uh, things are moving quite fast. If he were prepared to do something with the SNP, you could see some sort of alternative thing uh, emerging, which the Prime Minister might be worried about. So in retrospect, we might say, well, of course, Boris Johnson should have always known he had 15 years in power. But you know, it doesn't seem like that, that at the time. Uh, I, but I think the government you know, now is on a shorter timescale. You could argue it should have been doing some of these long term things in its first two years, but because it did Brexit, then COVID, uh, almost simultaneously after it got its majority, it's really been too distracted to do all of that. Um, but I'd be very interested in views from, from Stephen and Dan about whether they think that there's actually long-term thinking there. I think that is where the levelling up white paper will be quite interesting. Is this a bunch of sort of short-term paint jobs, the sort of thing Dan was talking about? Actually, don't underestimate them. Uh, when I was at DEFRA, people were always very frustrated that we wanted local government to be having sort of ambitious climate targets and things like that. But actually, the things that mattered to local people were really graffiti, quality of public realm. Did they feel safe going out and things? So actually, improving the look of town centres, actually, I think would yield quite a lot of benefits. Um, or does it actually suggest that the government does have some thought about where to go in the long term? And are they are they able to commandeer their back benches enough, Stephen's point, to get some bold, radical, non 
helping everybody actually redistributions through aren't do they have the stomach for it? it's not clear to me that they have the party management skills or the stomach to do that yeah thanks Jill it's um uh, interesting this, the corollary of some of the uh, sort of ambition ambition to the point of recklessness uh, uh, around social care and uh, uh, net zero and uh, uh, planning reform is uh, is actually they are trying to uh, uh, trying to think long term and there is some uh, you know, if, if you're going to solve long-term entrenched political problems, you need some baubles uh, that give you uh, a di dividend in the in the short term. But I, I, Dan or Stephen, do you want to come in on either of those points, uh, or I'll, I'll move us on? I mean, just Dan. just 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 briefly. I mean, on the, I mean, it's always yes, it's always hard to do long-term planning. You know, within a, within a government of one party, you know, um, because you've always got your eye on the on the next election. Um, um, so so that's that's always tricky. Um, and obviously it's even it's you know what what the what the business wants to know and everything else is if the government changed would it be more or less the same policies and i mean there's some i mean you might say at the moment the kind of ideology ideology of this government is is much more interventionist much more for sort of high spending it's not i mean obviously there's wings in the tory party that want low taxes and a small state and stuff but it's clearly not the johnsonian vision of the world so you might think there's a little bit more uh, consistency um, that, that sort of you know might be useful, but 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 then again, you know, for, for a while we had the industrial strategy was the big thing. We even had a department called industrial strategy or something, and that sort of went. Um, and so you just don't know what on earth is going on. So it is difficult, but I, I think you can do better than than the government's doing at the minute. But I'm not sure. I don't know who in government really, you know, really wants to make their sort of long term mark. To be honest, and I do think you need politicians. Who want to do that? Sometimes it goes to their egos a little bit, and sometimes it'd be very frustrating politically if you're just trying to win elections. But maybe Michael goes the man. We'll see if the levelling up paper, white paper, sort of surprises us all. Thanks, Dan. Stephen, is is Michael Gove the man? I think actually, I think yeah, Michael Gove move, move is one of the really interesting things about the last six months, right? In the not just and you know full. This disclosure, whenever I speak to large chunks of my friends, loads of them are in uh, flats and houses affected by the cladding scandal and they continually go, why don't you write and talk about this more? Um, but yeah, I think Michael Gove has made a really uh, impressive start at his his new rebranded department, not least because I think actually it would have been it, it would be electorally disastrous for the Conservatives to go into the next election saying, you know, these people in help to buy flats or, you know, in, in, in nice conservative wards in, in marginal marginal seats in, in towns, you have to pay for this thing that you could not possibly have known that your developer has done 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 for you. But I don't think it's a coincidence that the moment that Michael Gove has left his job where he was effectively the prime minister's auxiliary, right? He was the Claude Makalele to 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 Boris Johnson's uh, Eric Cantona, right? He was yeah. Then that's completely the wrong era of football football for for Claude McAuley. But anyway, um, yeah. He, the, I don't think it's a coincidence that things have got significantly worse for the government when they've lost that overarching vision in the centre, essentially as a backup uh, to the prime minister. And he, you know, I, I do think it is hard to run a government where you don't have uh, vision from the centre. However, I think not least actually, I would I would defend previous governments from the idea they didn't do you know, long term thinking. Right. We shouldn't forget that the government of David Cameron did electrify more regional railways than New Labour did in 13 years. And indeed, most of the infrastructure projects we are now be seeing completed in London, like Crossrail, are New Labour era initiated projects. One of the things which helped get us partially out of this nightmare of lockdown is the Vaccine um, Manufacture Innovation Centre, which is a Theresa May era project. 
But there is, I think, a specific problem because I think Jill's exactly right. The, the, this is a government which has a coalition and is a bit weird. Then really the one thing that it has a shared interest in is Brexit and low interest rates. And neither Brexit nor low interest rates are easy to reconcile with a high growth economy. And if you don't have a high growth economy, it's very hard to deliver any of this radical stuff without having to make some quite painful decisions on um, tax, borrowing or debt. Thanks, Stephen. It uh, tees up a question I was going to ask Kelly uh, nicely, actually, which is that if you think about, <clears throat> okay, this is not all about electoral politics and there's, a, there's lots of structural stuff as, uh, as well, but uh, if you think about the government, top of the government's mind going into the next election uh, will be, uh, I suspect, a couple of questions. One, uh, will uh, Brexit not being done, uh, will, will the Brexit um, a dividend politically continue through the next election? Is it better to go in with Brexit still being an issue or not? One question. The second, how forgiving will um, the electorate be uh, on things like this uh, about COVID uh, and the disruption that COVID has uh, caused uh, in, the, in the context of everything else that's going on. I mean, Kelly, is that a, is, is that is that a reasonable way of framing it? Uh, fab question, Alex. So I think let me just paint a bit of a, a picture about what 2022 is going to look like, and I'll try not to be morbid, but. Um, we're going into a period now where so we've experienced what happens when you get a variant of concern in the country at a point at which you, you're hoping for some kind of semblance of normality returning. There are nine more letters of the Greek alphabet left. Um, there are many countries around the world which have not yet been vaccinated at any great scale. We are going to see more variants of concern throughout 2022. So being able to deliver against the manifesto pledges in a period where you are in out, in out, shake it all about for the majority of next year, it's going to be really hard for our Conservative government. And Brexit and interest rates, as Stephen mentioned, um, you know, yes, that's the thing that binds the, the coalition, but actually Brexit will not be, I believe, top of public mind when we get to uh, an election period. Those second order concerns and um, a stability from a health perspective will be more um, of a priority in the public's minds. And um, so I think we will see that coming to the fore. How the extent to which the public will give the Conservative government uh, a buy ball because of the COVID pandemic is a question. And actually, I did want to have a positive here as well about government because we have seen real halo effects and real boosts in the polls when the government and the civil service, not the ministers on their own, the civil service has implemented at scale some things that quite practically were impossible or viewed as impossible. And that shows that when necessary, things can happen and things can be delivered. And I think Barbara touched on this in her opening address. Um, and so playing with that as a really strong card in the next election, um, may be of benefit. Thanks, Kelly. I'm glad you tempered the pessimism with a bit of optimism. I'm, a, uh, I'm an uh, eternal optimist. <laughs> I we, have to, I think we have to be. Um, Jill, there's a question, and this is a very IFG question uh, um, from um, Abdurrahman um, uh, about civil service reform uh, and, civil, and, and the civil service, as Kelly mentioned it there. Um, do you think the DNA of the civil service has changed in the last decade? Interested in your views on whether the role of the civil service has fundamentally shifted, perhaps negatively impacting on its ability to provide a robust challenge and impartial and expert advice to ministers and government. Uh, Jill. Oh, well, I'm slightly tempted to turn that one back to you, Alex. <laughs> we will discover you're the programme director for civil service reform in the IFG. So 
Do I think it's changed enormously? I mean, it's changed in size. Um, we've seen a lot of people uh, come in, though the government is trying to undo that, particularly the sort of pandemic related expansion. Uh, I think uh, IFG stats suggest that uh, that sort of expansion has made it a bit more London centric, rather ironically, given that the government's uh, big policy is relocation out. Uh, it's made it a bit younger uh, because you've got some more younger people coming in. And yeah, the government, notwithstanding, you might think people look and think, do I want to work for this government, uh, given what people assume uh, lots of graduates think about it and the Brexit and stuff like that. But it doesn't seem to have particular problems in recruiting. And indeed, civil servants recruitment is usually quite counter cyclical. So if the trust market generally is tightening, then it's hard to get civil servants. So did quite did quite well. Um, I do think this issue of advice and challenge is really, really, really interesting because one of the, and we looked at this quite a lot at IFG, but I am going to throw this back to you, Alex. And one of the things we did find there was it was incredibly variable between departments, the extent to which ministers were interested in civil service advice. And I think one of the things that becomes quite disheartening if you're a civil servant is where ministers clearly don't value your advice, don't necessarily expect them to take it all the time, but not engaging with it or being interested in it, I think is is a real problem and refusing to engage with the issues is another problem. I think there's a separate problem, but this is largely, I think, confined to the relationships really right at the top of the civil service is this very uncomfortable role with a government that almost sets a store as Cummings inheritors of people who are prepared to break sort of conventions, which are a bit for those wimps that used to precede them who could never get Brexit done. If you have ministers who don't pay much attention to convention, uh, I think it makes it really difficult for those who are supposed to be uh, ensuring that they do play by the rules. And I think that has troubled quite a lot of those senior relationships in a way. But I think actually the decline of the civil service um, as a principal advisor to government, yeah, complemented by some more variegated advice coming in, I would date back to Tony Blair rather than to Boris Johnson. But over to you, Alex. Thanks, Jim. Well, I, I'm conscious of time, so I'm going to only very briefly take up your uh, take up your invitation there to say that um, uh, that, that I uh, agree with um, uh, with that. Uh, and I think there are there are so many challenges the civil service uh, faces, the quality of its, the quality and confidence of its policy advice, um, the relationships at the top that um, uh, Jill was uh, talking about there. I think there's, it's it's easy to get into a council of despair, but I do think my own personal view is that something fairly uh, profound uh, has changed in terms of those relationships and trust at the, at the, at the top of the office, as it were. But more on that another time, uh, definitely, uh, in the IFG. Um, there are a couple of questions. Um, uh, uh, Dan, maybe I'll kick off with um, uh, with uh, you uh, about relationships. Um, uh, there's one, local priorities are more complex than wanting graffiti removed, former local government officer here. Do you think Whitehall will work on its relationships with local leaders to deliver on its ambitions? And another um, uh, question, has the PM blown it with business in terms of getting business to support him in delivery? So relationships with uh, local leaders and with business, Dan. Well, I mean, you know, local government always has a difficult problem with uh, Whitehall. Um, you know, it's it's been many, many years that it's sort of been starved of finances and powers. And, there's, you know, there's been moments when things have gone back and forward. 
Uh, and whatever um, you know, Whitehall and ministers say, um, they don't really like giving up uh, power to local government. Obviously, the Conservatives have some doubts about metro mayors and so forth that tend to be sort of rather, you know, loudmouth Labour ones on the whole. So it'd be very interesting to see whether they, you know, the sort of, um, you know, one idea is they'll create county mayors or um, whatever they're going to call them uh, in the levelling up white paper to get back. But so, but I'm, I'm, I'm still dubious um, that much will happen. If you see all the kind of levelling up funding at the minute, you know, it's the classic centrally held pots that people locally have to bid for and people in the centre decide who gets it. Absolutely ridiculous. So I, I, I don't see lots of change there at the moment. I mean, in, in terms of relationships with business, I think business and, you know, you've got a kind of new chief executive at the CBI and so forth, you know, are desperate to try and get alongside um, government um, in different ways, um, whether the government will welcome them in. I think they were pretty disturbed by the fact the industrial strategy was around one day and had gone the next day. So, but that relationship, I mean, at the end of the day, business tends to tends to lean to the Conservatives anyway, so maybe they take them for granted. Although, um, as, as was shown in the run up to 97, if they can see who's going to win, they switch sides pretty quickly if they think it's the other lot. Thanks, Dan. Uh, Stephen, do you think about local government in particular? Um, well, it's interesting, right? Because the thing about the budget is the first re first time anyone in local government has had new money for a, for a decade. Uh, so that is quite an important shift. And although the cabinet is divided, and indeed we are seeing with the negotiations over TfL's bailout, the extent to which the government really likes devolution, the second there is political divergence is, is being tested. Um, but um, I think you know, the thing is, is the one, if you have a difficult problem, it's kind of the reverse of devolve and forget. It's devolve and hope and someone else solves the problem for you. So I think then we will see more of that kind of thing. I think, how, however, because I do think there'll be a moment later on next year when people in government suddenly start going, oh God, the election's really soon, that will lead itself to things which are a bit simplistic but are deliverable out the box, like cleaning up graffiti and a variety of things that are fairly small ball, simply because, yeah, it is, you know, and I, I know no one really likes to think about this in December when the idea of having to you know, go out and cover an election feels a bit exhausting, but it is going to, it is really soon in the grand, in the life of a government, it's really imminent now. Um, so, so I think it will be simplistic things like cleaning up graffiti all the way, probably from about, yeah, June of next year at the absolute latest. I'd note there's quite a lot of money go on, going in on potholes, uh, so uh, I guess the government will hope that that, um, uh, that comes to fruition. Um, I'm going to uh, start to draw it to uh, a close uh, there. Um, uh, thank you very much to fantastic panel. Thank you to um, Kelly, Jill, Stephen and uh, Dan. Thank you to all of you for those uh, brilliant questions. Really uh, uh, appreciate them and hope you found it an interesting discussion. Uh, thanks also to um, PA Consulting, uh, who we work with to, um, uh, to put this event together. Um, uh, keep an eye on the IFG's website uh, uh, for all sorts of interesting things coming up, including points about civil service reform, reflections on this uh, extraordinary uh, week uh, and uh, many other things besides. So thank you very much and uh, have a good rest of the day. Thank you for listening and we hope you've enjoyed this edition of IFG Live. Please do subscribe to hear more. And if you'd like to know about our upcoming events, please visit instituteforgovernment.org.uk slash events. Thank you.